Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad to be here with you today. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. From the BBC News, a new report shows that psychedelics can free up the brains of people with severe depression in a way that other antidepressants do not. Mm. It was based on brain scans of 60 people, so somewhat conservative sample size. And patients with depression, it should be noted, are warned not to take psilocybin on their own. Right. Because according to the article, a synthetic form of the drug was tested on people in trials under strict medical conditions, because of course, and they even had psychological support from experts before, during, and after the experience, which I Mm. think is a really critical component, especially in the context we're talking about. Right. That's how you get emotional breakthrough instead of spiders under your skin. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But specifically with depression, the brain can get stuck in a rut and locked into a particular negative way of thinking, honestly, same. Um, (laughs) But when given psilocybin, people's brains opened up and became more flexible and fluid even up to three weeks later. Hmm. And this could be seen as an increase of connections between regions of the brain when patients were scanned. However, similar changes were not seen in the brains of people treated with standard antidepressants. And while regular antidepressants are taken on a daily basis, psilocybin may only need to be taken once or twice to produce the same effect. Mm -hmm. If you're curious, the results have been published in Nature Medicine. They were taken from two studies. In the first study, everyone got psilocybin. Hooray! And in the second, (laughs) a randomized control trial, some were given the drug while others were given a different antidepressant. All participants also received talking therapies, like we talked about, with registered mental health professionals. You know, you want to find someone legit. They took brain scans before, then one day or three weeks after taking the therapy. So pretty promising. I do feel like the double blind nature is kind of a wash. Like, I don't care if you give somebody an antidepressant as a, oh, look, you took a different drug. You're going to know if someone's high out of their mind. Or if they just took a Prozac, yeah. like that, you know. Psilocybin has some pretty characteristic effects. It right, does, right. but obviously we got to look into this more, right? Oh, for sure. They should definitely do more research and videotape it. And I'd like to see. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that YouTube channel is going to make so much on ads. Absolutely. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. This article comes to us from thetakeout.com, and it's titled, Why Cheetos Are Banned in Germany and How Flamin' Hots Sneak In Anyway. What? (laughs) Yeah. I don't like either half of that. Cheetos are banned, but also there's a black market only for the Flamin' Hot ones? (laughs) I mean... Well, you know, we don't have Kinder Eggs, so they don't get to have Flamin' Hot. Right, right. That seems reasonable. Yeah, tit for tat. (laughs) So, would a Cheeto by any other name taste as dangerously cheesy? (laughs) That's the conundrum in Germany, where due to some savvy trademarking by the country's largest snack food corporation, Cheetos have been illegal since 1980. Wow. The Dusseldorf-based conglomerate Intersnack, whose chips, pretzels, and corn puffs dominate the German market, 
has been suing anyone who dares to sell <gasps> Cheetos in Germany on the grounds that the name Cheetos is too similar to that of one of Intersnack's own products, Cheetos. That's C-H-I-T-O-S. Oh, my so, the author first became aware of the situation while browsing the aisles of a Berlin ethnic grocery store that will remain nameless. Its selection <laughs> of North American goods had been expanding recently. But what were these bright orange packets with a familiar cheetah on the front and a red sticker covering up the brand name on top? Were these misprinted bags where Chester was saying the F word or something? <laughs> no. The internet informed her the censorship stickers were actually a loophole. Ugh. They said other stores have gotten letters saying they'd have to pay thousands of euros for violating the trademark. Ugh. Our lawyer told us that as long as the name isn't visible, we should be okay, but we're still not 100% sure. <laughs> Indeed, censoring your Cheetos won't guarantee you safety from the wrath of Intersnat Group. Earlier this year, a German seller was fined 2,538 euros because the sticker they'd slapped over the logo on each bag could be easily removed, thus leading to brand confusion. Come on. Yeah, which might be perfectly reasonable grounds for a lawsuit if there were any such thing as a Cheeto. <gasps> it's true that one of Intersnack's marquee chip brands is called Cheetos, no T. Cheetos are not sold in stores or online. The only proof of their existence is this page on the Intersnack site, which features a photoshopped-looking 75-gram bag of circular snacks described as the airy, crispy rings of delicious potato dough with an aromatic <laughs> cheese note refined with delicious onions. Oh, what? Sounds Gosh. delicious They and just fake. pretended that one of their snacks was named Cheetos and then kept the other Cheetos out? Yep, and you gotta, <laughs> I mean, I would recommend checking out the site because it's on the Cheeto site, and they have a picture of some cheese and some onions and these little, you know, cheap ring-looking snack things. It's like the most <laughs> generic thing you've ever seen. Wow. <laughs> Brutal. So according to Intersnack's official trademark registration for the brand publicly available via the German Patent Office, the list of things that can be called Cheetos includes not only extruded potato, wheat, rice, and or corn products for snack purposes, but also ready-to-eat goods to be prepared in a toaster, particularly sweet and savory sandwiches, hard and soft biscuits, gingerbread and honey cake, and candy, especially toffees, bonbons, and fondant. Oh, it so, sounds like they're naming every product they have Cheetos. Yeah, you know, <laughs> like, Cheetos are a color, an emotion, a state of mind. <laughs> they're that look in his eyes when you tell him you love him. They are you and me. <laughs> oh, oh my God. Yeah, so in response to multiple emails and phone calls, Intersnack's press department issued only the following cryptic statement. The trademark protection for Cheetos is still valid, and national <laughs> campaigns with Cheetos will soon be forthcoming. I'm sure they will. <laughs> yeah, but a spokesperson from American Food For You says this is not likely. This is an import business that keeps Germans supplied with ranch dressing, Pop-Tarts, Pabst Blue Ribbon, and crunchy cheese-coated corn snacks sold under the dubious label Cornchos. <laughs> After... <laughs> After months of legal entanglements with Intersnack, American Food for You is convinced that as long as their lawyers can keep making money off of this, it'll continue without end. And meanwhile, those forthcoming national campaigns that Intersnack mentioned are more along the lines of In-N-Out Burger's four-hour European pop-up locations, the bare minimum of operation required to hold on to the copyright. So you may be tempted to view Intersnack Group as the villain in this story, a yeah. miserly megacorp <laughs> screwing over homesick Americans who just want to lick powdered cheese off their fingers again. <laughs> but you could also see the Cheetos gambit 
As an act of heroism, Germany's last line of defense against a tidal wave of snack food imperialism that has already engulfed most of the world. No, nope, I'm not feeling bad for him. <laughs> <laughs> the author asks if they've mentioned, if she's mentioned yet, how proudly boring the German savory snack industry is. <laughs> While other countries experiment with bacon, wasabi, dill pickle, or crab chips, Germany is stuck with paprika or sweet paprika. <laughs> Or if they really want to go crazy, wild paprika. Wow. <laughs> and Intersnack alone imports 210 tons of paprika per year, making it the Whoa. Hungarian spice industry's single biggest buyer. Wow. And how does paprika taste in chip form? In the words of Sir Patrick Stewart, it's possible that these would not exactly delight you in the way some cruder chips do, but there is a subtle flavor. What? <laughs> Ever the diplomat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's no wonder that Intersnack would feel threatened by Cheetos. Then again, even if the name Cheetos suddenly became legal in Germany, Cheetos as a product wouldn't be. The classic fried version of the snack contains high amounts of acrylamide, a potential carcinogen that's A-OK in the United States, but strictly Aww. regulated in Europe. And the so-called Cheetos that Frito-Lay manufactures in Poland, Spain, and Cyprus are wan, puffy imitations that may be ketchup-flavored or football-shaped, but never, ever crunchy, let alone flaming hot. And I can speak to this personally, they're not the same. Uh. Uh, specialty shops like American Food for You have been able to get away with importing small amounts of the real thing, but the spokesperson told the author that supplies are now dwindling. Corn chows have been sold out on the website for a long time. <laughs> And the spokes <laughs> Why is corn shows the thing that's unraveling me about this? Yeah, corn it's, just, it's all they can get over there, you know? They're desperate. I mean, it is somehow the most American thing ever because it seems like it's a nachos thing, but like uh -huh. the appropriation feels undoubtedly American, does it not? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm sorry, go on. <laughs> so the question is, how does Germany get its precious Cheetos? Many Americans who live in Germany are sourcing their Cheetos the good old-fashioned way by stuffing suitcases full of them every time they hit the motherland. <laughs> That's how Chris Haskins, who runs the kitchen at Berlin Craft Beer Pub Manifest Taproom, gets the garnish for his signature mac and cheese. Uh, Haskins oh. says of his decision to top the dish with crumbled flaming hot Cheetos, I knew I wanted it to be American style, and I wanted it to stand out visually. When you bring uh. it to people's tables, there's definitely a wow factor. Mm. Every time Haskins goes to see family in Washington, D.C. or Atlanta, he brings some 10 bags of the spicy snack. Luckily, I only use them for this one item, so I just need one bag every two weeks. The hardest wow. part is making sure my staff doesn't eat them. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, we need to invest, guys. We need to, like, get ourselves a black market shipping ring. Literally, I have half a bag of hot Cheetos on my desk as we speak. And it's only half a bag because I already ate half. So. <laughs> I don't know how you could have prepared for this article in any other way. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> I had to remember. Uh, anyways, next link. Next, next link. link. All right, this next article is from the BBC, and it's called Intuition, When Is It Right to Trust Your Gut Instincts? Mm. So we start off by comparing two famously brilliant people's opinions on the matter. The first is Albert Einstein, who said in 1929, I believe in intuitions and inspirations. I sometimes feel that I am right. I do not know that I am. And the second one is apparently Coco Chanel, who said, fashion is in the air, born upon the wind. One intuits it. Hmm. But so it turns out that there has actually been a lot of study done on intuition and where it comes from and how reliable it is. And the gold standard here is called the Iowa Gambling Task, 
which was developed in 1994 by Antoine Bechara. The setup is that there are four decks of cards, which are full of what are effectively winners and losers, right? Positive numbers and negative numbers. The decks have been deliberately stacked so that two of them contain big winners, but even bigger losers, while the other two contain moderate winners, but small losers. So over time, obviously, your best bet is to choose cards from the moderate decks. Mm -hmm. But the key here is that the participants don't know the decks have been stacked. They think the distribution is random. Mm -hmm. And the researchers found that after about 40 turns, most people start to get a gut feeling about which decks are better, even though if you ask them, they won't be able to put into words why. Mm -hmm. And that second part's really important. They haven't consciously picked up on the pattern. They can't say to you, I've noticed this deck has smaller losers than that deck. But on a subconscious level, somewhere in their brain, they have picked up on it. Hmm. And this is evident not just in their actions, but in their physiological state. When a participant starts to reach for one of the riskier decks, their body will start to show a subtle stress response, like a slightly raised heartbeat, some increased sweating. These changes are called somatic markers, and they're believed to be the way that our subconscious mind sends us a message about a pattern that it's noticed that we haven't seen yet. So when we say we have a bad feeling about this, it's because we literally feel bad. And these somatic markers have been independently studied as well. For example, there are some neurological patients who cannot form somatic markers, like physically, and their outward behavior changes dramatically. They find it very hard to make decisions. They seem unable to calculate risk appropriately, even when the risk is objectively measurable and not based on some long-term subtle pattern. That being said, intuition is not always the best way to go. One experiment that really teased out the relationship between instinct and intellectual analysis was done in 2012 by Eric Dane, a professor at Rice University. His research team showed participants a series of designer handbags, some of which were fake. Half of the study group was told to go purely on instinct, while the other half was told to ignore any gut feelings they might have and to name the specific features they saw that helped them determine each bag's authenticity. They also asked each participant whether they had any prior experience shopping for designer handbags. And for the analytical group, they found that experience made no difference. When they were forced to justify their choices with evidence, everyone got about the same number right. But for the people relying on intuition, expertise made a huge difference, not just against those who had no experience, but against the experts who had been told to use analysis instead. Ooh. Experts who just went with their gut did about 20% better than experts who had tried to verbalize exactly why they thought something was a fake. Hmm. Huh. And they go into a few other examples. It's kind of a long article. But the underlying theme here seems to be that your subconscious mind does need some information to work with. But if it has that information, you should just step back and let it do its job. What's more, your subconscious can work in the background to process information without you realizing it. In another experiment, researchers deliberately overwhelmed participants with a ton of information about a series of apartments. After about one minute, they were all asked to give their gut impression about which apartment was the best. Then half of the group was given more time with the data while the other half of the group was distracted with puzzles for the same amount of time. <laughs> then they were each asked again, and ultimately the best scores were achieved by the folks who were still going on gut instinct, but who had walked away and thought about something else for a little while. They Ooh. had the information, they just didn't know they had it, and they needed time to think about it, but they needed to not be thinking about it while they thought about <laughs> it. 
This is giving me such flashbacks of every multiple choice test I took in high school and having like an out of body experience where like <laughs> I would overthink every single one and mm-hmm. try to get real tactical and literal. And a lot of the advice we would get, especially for things like the SAT, were if you have a gut feeling, just go with that. That's right. And if we know when to rely on intuition, the big question becomes, can we improve our intuition? And the answer is yes. Ooh! Intuition is not correlated with IQ. You can be academically smart or not, and it doesn't say one way or the other whether you'll also have good intuition. What it is correlated with is EI, or emotional intelligence, which includes things like your ability to identify emotions on other people's faces or to predict how someone's going to feel in a complicated situation. And when Jeremy Yip at Georgetown University compared people's EI scores to their performance on the Iowa gambling task, he found that everyone still had the physiological response to the risky decks. These guys did have a subconscious that was telling them what to do, but Mm -hmm. that people with low EI misinterpreted those signals as excitement rather than fear, and they were (gasps) pushed toward the riskier behavior because of it. But (sighs) after taking six EI training sessions over the course of three weeks, participants not only had better EI scores, they also performed significantly better on the Iowa gambling task. So, you know, you should care about people if you want to be a good gambler, I guess, is the (laughs) solution we're having here. It also kind of, and I know correlation is not causation, but this has interesting parallels to the world of investing, where Mm -hmm. historically, and I'm making some broad generalizations, don't at me on Twitter, y'all, but (laughs) we've known women tend to be more conservative or risk averse when it comes to investing. I wonder if there's a connection with Mm -hmm. AI in both of those as well. Right. Well, in the study, you really want to do is are women better investors like the men may have the bigger wins, but they also have the bigger losses like in the card deck task. Yeah. Over the long run, it's definitely women. Well, then what you need is a ringer. Every investment company needs to have like this back room of women just going like, (laughs) what do you think? And they go, hmm, that one. And they go, well, it doesn't make any sense, but that's what we're doing. (laughs) You know, (laughs) Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan, I'm sure they're listening and can't wait to put together a group of women to do exactly that. (laughs) Next link. Next link. Okay. Have you guys seen the show Old Enough? (gasps) I've seen the little previews. I haven't watched it yet, but I'm so charmed by it. Okay. I have to kind of get this out of the way. It is a Japanese children's show and the translation is not great considering (laughs) our relationship with Japanese media, but the Japanese name of this show, and it's been on Japanese TV for over 30 years based on a children's book of the same name from 1977. And the show's called Hajimete no Otsukai, which means first errand, which I think would have been a lot better than old enough. Right, right. (laughs) But anyway, you see a tiny child, like a toddler, setting off to complete their first errand all by themselves. And, you know, alone is not really the thing because there are cameramen around. But they also interact with everybody else in the village or neighborhood that they're in. And Mm. what you see is, you know, these kids are tottering off into the neighborhood they inevitably forget what they're supposed to be doing. They have a meltdown or a moment of confusion, but then ultimately figure it out and make their way back, you know, with plastic shopping bags, having succeeded in their mission. The show has, like I said, been on for so long that some of the kids on the show's newer episodes have parents who were on the show when they were Wow! Kids. But in the first of the 20 episodes made available to Netflix subscribers, a two-year-old travels to the town convenience store to buy groceries for mom. 
In the fourth episode, three-year-old Yuka crosses a five-lane road in Akashi, which is a city the size of Cincinnati, to get to the fish market. And、wow. mom even asks, "Can you go all the way to Unotana without getting hit by any cars?"、Oh. Which, yeah, sounds horrific. Because needless to say, if this show were set in the United States, the parents would be under investigation by、yeah. Child Protective、mm-hmm. Services. But Like many things about Japan, it would be easy to attribute Hajimete no Tsukai to some cliche about Japanese essentialism, but they're not that different from us. They've just made policy choices that make it possible for kids to run their first errand a decade before their American counterparts get to do the same.、Mm-hmm. So in Japan, a lot of kids go to neighborhood schools on foot and by themselves, and that's super typical. Japanese children don't actually run errands for mom and dad at the city at age two or three years old, as they do in the show. But the roads and the street networks are designed for kids to walk in a safe manner. Some schools employ things called walking school buses, which is a morning parade of kids in which older ones help guide the younger ones. And school trips can also introduce children to their neighborhood, which facilitates other kinds of travel. Japanese parents believe kids should be able to get around by themselves, and they build policies to support that. And that planning paradigm means you have shops and small businesses in residential neighborhoods, which means there are places to go and places、mm-hmm. these kids can walk to. And the research revealed that kids were more likely to travel independently in mixed-use urbanized neighborhoods, and that's in part because destinations are close by, but also because children in cities were more likely to see people they knew on such trips, which kind、mm. of upends a common stereotype about cities being anonymous, alienating environments, right?、Mm-hmm. And it's not like Japanese parents don't fear stranger danger. You know, while crime is low by Western standards, kidnappings are not unheard of. In fact, there was a detective novel in 2012 called Six Four, which was a smash hit in Japan about this exact thing. But instead of telling children to keep to themselves, kids in Japan are taught to say hello to the people they pass, which is part of a Japanese greeting culture known as aisatsu. That builds a dense social network that can help out in a pinch, like you'll see in episode seven when the local hardware <laughs> store helps Miro cross the street. Aww! In a survey of fourteen countries, Japanese parents were the most likely to agree with the idea that neighborhood adults look out for other people's children.、Hmm. And obviously, the biggest winner of this system might be mom, because when kids need a chaperone, guess who the role usually falls to? Right.、And、that's for both U.S. and Japan. But Japanese kids aged ten and eleven make just fifteen percent of weekday trips with a parent, compared with sixty-five percent of trips for American kids. That honestly seems low too. I would have guessed <laughs>、right? closer to a hundred. You know, the takeaway here is that a city that frees children also frees their parents, and、mm-hmm. that's a cultural difference, right? But it's one that's deeply associated with a different approach to designing cities. It's an option. Yeah, I mean, philosophically, I definitely agree with it from a parenting standpoint. I'm a little bit unable to change the city layout because, like in my neighborhood, <laughs> the nearest errand you could possibly run is a mile and a half away. And yes, you could send your child walking a mile and a half, but there, you know, it's different when the city's laid out, like you said, where each neighborhood functions and、yeah. can have those little shops and have other things that the kids can do and meet、mm-hmm. everybody. 
But if we had urban or even suburban planning, you see some of this behavior in some of the suburbs, but it is still very car-based here in America. Mm -hmm. Anyway, watch the show. It's a delight. It is just beyond precious and perfect. And make your kids watch it too. You know, get them talking. Could they do this? Oh, man, I'll tell you what. (laughs) There is no faster way to get a kid to do something than to show them that a younger kid can do it. Because it's like, oh, what are you, a baby? They will jump all over something if they can see a younger kid can do something they can't. Shame-based American exceptionalism to the rescue again. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from CNBC.com, and it's titled, Leaked Documents Show Notorious Ransomware Group Has an HR Department, Performance Reviews, and an Employee of the Month. Oh, yeah, legit. <laughs> so of all the things to borrow from the corporate world, that's that's what you went for. OK, I know. Right. right? <laughs> so a Russian group identified by the FBI as one of the most prolific ransomware groups of 2021 may now understand how it feels to be the victim of cyber espionage. A series of document leaks reveal details about the size, leadership, and business operations of the group known as Conti, as well as what's perceived as its most prized possession of all, the source code of its ransomware. Mm. Shmuel Gihan, a security researcher at the threat intelligence company Cyberint, said the group emerged in 2020 and grew into one of the biggest ransomware organizations in the world. He estimates the group has around 350 members who have collectively made some 2.7 billion cryptocurrency in only two years. Conti most frequently victimized the critical manufacturing, commercial facilities, and food and agriculture sectors, the Bureau said. In an online post analyzing the leaks, Cyberint said the leak appears to be an act of revenge prompted by a since-amended post by Conti published in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The group could have remained silent, but as we suspected, Conti chose to side with Russia, and this is where it all went south, Cyberint said. The leak started on February 28th, four days after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Soon after the post, someone opened a Twitter account named Conti Leaks and started leaking thousands of the group's internal messages alongside pro-Ukrainian statements. The owner claims to be a security researcher and appears to have stepped back from Twitter, writing on March 30th, My last words, see you all after our victory, glory to Ukraine. Hmm. The impact of the leak on the cybersecurity community was huge, according to Gihan, who added that most of his global colleagues spent weeks pouring through the documents. The American cybersecurity company Trellix called the leak the Panama Papers of Ransomware, and one of the (laughs) largest crowdsourced cyber investigations ever seen. After translating many of its messages, which were written in Russian, Conti has clear management, finance, and human resource functions, along with a classic organizational hierarchy with team leaders that report to upper management. (laughs) There's also evidence of research and development units and business dev units, according to Cyberin's findings. The messages showed Conti has physical offices in Russia and that the group may have ties to the Russian government. Our assumption is that such a huge organization with physical offices and enormous revenue would not be able to act in Russia without the full approval or even some cooperation Mm. with Russian intelligence services. The Russian embassy in London did not respond to CNBC requests for comments, and Moscow (laughs) has previously denied that it takes part in cyber attacks. Well, yeah, but... (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Checkpoint Research also found Conti has salaried workers, some of whom are paid in Bitcoin, plus performance reviews, negotiators (laughs) who receive commissions ranging from half a percent to one percent of paid ransoms, an employee referral program with bonuses given to employees who recruited others who worked for at least a month, and an employee of the month who earns a bonus equal to half their salary, which is wow. Cool. Yeah. 
However, unlike above-board companies, Conti finds its underperformers. They've got some examples of fines for underperformance with a user named Silver saying, Developer Rags gets fined this month for being absent from work without good reason. This month, three people were fined for absenteeism and various other mistakes that led to losses. These fines will go to the bonus fund for employees of the month. So, well, right. you know, you don't show up to work. You can't. That makes sense. Even if you're working in a hacker organization. <laughs> yeah. You know, instead of the swear jar, you get the truancy jar. So. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Checkpoint research says when communicating with employees, higher management would often make the case that working for Conti was the deal of a lifetime. High mm-hmm. salaries, interesting tasks and career growth. However, some of the messages paint a different picture with threats of termination for not responding to messages quickly enough within three hours and work hours during weekends and holidays. For the hiring process, Conti hires from both legitimate sources such as Russian headhunting services and the criminal underground. Perhaps unsurprisingly, according to Brian Krebs, a former Washington Post reporter, the turnover, attrition, and burnout rate was quite high for low-level Conti employees. Some Mm -hmm. hires weren't even computer specialists, according to Checkpoint Research. Conti hired people to work in call centers. According Mm. to the FBI, tech support fraud is on the rise, where scammers impersonate well-known companies, offer to fix computer problems, or cancel subscription charges. Alarmingly, we have evidence that not all the employees are fully aware that they're part of a cybercrime group. Yeah, these employees think they are working for an ad company, when in fact they are working for a notorious ransomware (laughs) group. Wow. Wow. Even before the leak, Conti was shown signs of distress. Stern went silent around mid-January, and salary payments stopped, according to the messages. Days before the leak, an internal message stated, There have been many leaks, there have been arrests, there is no boss, there is no clarity, there is no money either, I have to ask all of you to take a two- to three-month vacation. Oh. Yeah. But even though the group has been hobbled, it will likely rise again. Unlike its formal rival, R-Evil, whose members Russia said it arrested in January, Conti is still partially operating. The group has survived other setbacks, including the temporary disabling of TrickBot, a malware program used by Conti, and the arrests of several suspected TrickBot associates in 2021. And despite Mm. ongoing efforts to combat ransomware groups, the FBI expects attacks on critical infrastructure to increase in 2022. I mean, if you want evidence that it's government connected, all you got to do is look at the fact that the Ukraine war is what caused this person to leak all this stuff. (laughs) Like, yeah. if you just yeah. had a regular Russian company and you were like, I don't like what the government's doing, I'm going to blow my company up, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> but if the company is government-sponsored, then clearly it makes yeah. sense to torpedo it on political grounds. Yeah. And, you know, if it were just like a dog food company, I don't think you'd see the same sort of behavior from the internal people. I mean, unless they've just been lied to that they're working for a dog food company and they're actually working for a giant hacker conglomerate. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. Well, SciTech Daily often brings us good news, and today is no exception. This article is called MIT Scientists Develop New Regenerative Drug That Reverses Hearing Loss. Nice. (gasps) Ooh. And I guess the big thing I realized while reading this article was that I really didn't understand hearing loss. You know, I knew the basics about the eardrum and the three little bones with the funny names, and I had even sort of tangentially heard about these tiny little hairs inside your ear that play a role in picking up vibrations, right? Mm-hmm. But it turns out the tiny little hairs are everything. First off, we're not talking about the hair in your outer ear canal that old men have to trim. We're talking about oligodendrocytes, which are a type of hair cell that grows inside the cochlea in the inner ear. Humans are born with about 15,000 hair cells in each cochlea, 
And just like you can go bald on the top of your head, these hair cells can die and stop producing hair, and that will directly impact your ability to hear. Mm. This happens with age, of course, but it's also why certain antibiotics and chemotherapy medications can cause sudden hearing loss, because one of their side effects is killing off those hair cells so they can't grow back. So what these scientists have basically created is Rogaine for your ears. The company is called Frequency Therapeutics, and their leading drug candidate right now is called FREQ162. It is designed to be injected into the inner ear, and once it's there, it stimulates progenitor cells to transform into new oligodendrocytes. The company has dosed more than 200 patients to date and has seen clinically meaningful improvements in speech perception in three separate clinical studies, some after as little as one injection, with the results lasting for up to two years. And if this sounds like something that might benefit you or a loved one, Frequency Therapeutics is currently recruiting another 124 patients for their next trial. And the link to register for that is in the article. So, you know, go get your spot in line. The article, it gets a little more press releasey at this point, naming all the founders and touting some business deals they did before they formed this current venture. But one interesting detail is how they arrived on the concept of stimulating progenitor cells in the first place. So one of the founders, MIT professor Robert Langer, was working with a postdoc student named Xiaolei Yin on stem cells in the gut, which led to the realization that certain molecules used by stem cells in the gut are also used by progenitor cells in the gut, Which progenitor cells are sort of a related halfway step that a stem cell might go through on its way to differentiating into all the different cells that a stem cell can become. The key is stem cells are found in only a few specific places in the body, but progenitor cells are much more widespread. So now that they know they can stimulate progenitor cells in the ear, they suspect that they could stimulate progenitor cells elsewhere in the body to solve other diseases. And this would represent a massive improvement over current stem cell therapies because those procedures generally rely on extracting stem cells from the body, programming them in a lab, and then injecting them back into the place you want them to be. Whoa. So one application that's in development, for example, is a treatment for multiple sclerosis in which the immune system attacks the myelin in the brain and central nervous system. Patients with MS already have progenitor cells that are successfully turning into replacement myelin cells. They just aren't able to keep up with the rate of destruction. So the new drug candidate aims to simply make them work faster, basically. So far, the MS drug has only made it through mouse studies, but it does seem to work. And they're hoping to apply to the FDA for human trials starting next year. And, you know, even if it takes a long time for these other applications to pan out, the fact is they are giving hearing to people right now. They noted that some of the study participants had been effectively deaf for 30 years And all of a sudden, they could hear what their children are saying again. You know, it's pretty wild. Quotes from founders are always going to be optimistic and should be taken with a grain of salt. But they're throwing around terms like the future of regenerative medicine, which more power to them. I'd like to live for 100 years. But yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That could be huge for autoimmune disorders. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it's pretty amazing. It's there's always that fear of like you've stimulated a cell. 
and you didn't know what the side effects are going to be. And so now all of a sudden you have too many hairs in your ear. Mm -hmm. Like I was thinking about Cousin It from the Adams Family. You know, like (laughs) you end up with too much hair just like spiraling up in your brain. But, you know. Because if we can grow these super sensory hairs in places that we want, we can become like geckos and start to like walk up walls. All right. You know, (laughs) why not? Listen, I'm excited about this for so many reasons. Well, you can be one of the first ones to get a needle in your ear. I'm going to wait, maybe. But... Uh, yeah. yeah, fair. We'll go to beta. There you go. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. Well, from fizz.org, there is a new space balloon company that has just hmm. offered their first look at luxury cabins. Oh, we're getting that PR uh, voice coming in again. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a new entrant into the space tourism market. It may not be total space, but... You can get views of the Earth's curvature from the cabin lifted with a giant balloon. What could possibly go wrong? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it makes sense that it stays in the atmosphere because an actual balloon balloon in space, not a great idea. (laughs) Like (laughs) Space Perspective on Tuesday revealed illustrations of its swish cabins, which it hopes to start launching from the Kennedy Space Center in Florida, of course, from late 2024. More than 600 tickets have already been sold at $125,000 each. Hmm. With five feet high windows, it's got deep seats, dark purple tones, and subdued lighting. The Hmm. atmosphere contrasts with the white and sanitized capsules of its competitors. Unless, of course, you're familiar with Star Trek, and this whole situation feels very familiar. Right. It would be funny if, like, some interior designer was, like, clean and white and bright, and then the glare on the inside of the window meant you couldn't see anything. <laughs> like, the whole thing was just... <laughs> Exactly. And it is pretty subdued. I mean, they've got these really cush lounge chairs that are kind of spaced around to get a good view. But the balloon will reach an altitude of 20 miles, which, again, may not constitute space flight. That's kind of up for debate. But 20 miles is still a lot higher than commercial planes, which really ascend around six miles high. So you're Mm. definitely going to be higher than a commercial flight. You're above 99% of Earth's atmosphere. So you really can see the inky black of space. I'm sure, you know, the selfies will be epic and blurry. Or just super boring, like just a basic (laughs) black background. (laughs) Yeah, but, you know, if going to the top penthouse level of an exclusive building Mm -hmm. or club isn't enough for you, this is probably the next logical step. And in part because there's no special training required because the balloon climbs at a serene 12 miles per hour. And the company pitches itself as a greener zero emissions alternative to rocket fuels. They intend to get the hydrogen for the balloon from renewable sources as opposed to extraction from fossil fuels. But again, the price for the two hour up, two hours gliding and two hours down voyage, which ends with an ocean splashdown. It's still a lot cheaper than Virgin Galactic tickets, which are around 450,000 US dollars for a ride on a space plane. Blue Origin doesn't disclose its prices. It's one of those prices available upon request. But they are thought to be a lot more expensive. While four entrepreneurs who flew to the ISS on a SpaceX ship reportedly paid $55 million each to the company Axiom Space for the privilege. So, you know, they're trying to find a way that changes the way people think about space flight that feels approachable and accessible. But the one caveat you need to know is you will not experience a feeling of weightlessness. So Mm. if you were looking for that in your space travel, you're not going to get it here. So... Mm. 
Well, it does mean less vomit to clean off the couches if there's no weightlessness. <laughs> Unless you have like ego death at the very apex of the experience, in which True. case there's not enough barf bags to help you with that. <laughs> it's right up there with psilocybin for like, you know, mind changing experience. You get up there and you're like, oh, God, I am meaningless. And you go back down and nothing's ever the same. <laughs> you know, the groups ought to work together because if this is a relatively stable, no weightlessness, but you do see the curvature of Earth. I'm sure that that two hour up period is that preload with the therapist. There you go. There's a lot of potential there. Getting high in space. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include ancient Namibian stone could hold key to future quantum computers. Viruses are not always the villain. And Pluto wasn't the first, a brief history of our solar system's forgotten planets. So all that, plus everything we talked about today and so much more, can be found on damninteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us and our ad-free philosophy, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye. 